Okay, are we ready to get this episode started? Uh, yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> okay, I'm, I am prepared. Well, I mean, I'm emotionally, I'm not prepared, but because because I'm still not okay about today's Gundam episode. But this this movie also kind of has the same vibes as like the way that things have been going in Witch for Mercury. You know, <sighs> if you're not caught up, oh my god. I they... am aware of it being a Yuri show, so I know there's dyke drama out the ass. They just, for like the second half of the series, they've just fully just glued the emotional devastation pedal to the floor. Yeah, that's A, a hallmark of Gundam, and B, a hallmark of Yuri. It's so rude. I again suggest watching Revolutionary Girl Utena. If you want to understand so, 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 so much about the genre, like, you know, I, it's hard to spoil a 30-something-year-old anime, but um, the end of the Utena anime, rather than the Utena movie, is pretty emotionally devastating, and uh, it doesn't involve turbo-teening. That's a shame. The movie does, so the movie makes okay. up for the lack of turbo-teen. Okay. Okay, we should start the episode. We should. So, um, hello and welcome to Unsound Theories. I'm Kat, I'll be playing Mikey this episode. I'm Kira, and I'll be playing Nike this episode. (laughs) And we watch movies with no sound and no subtitles, and try to figure out what the hell is going on. Spoiler, they kiss. It, in my fiction... I have a whole theory about that that I would love to talk about when we get to that point. Okay. Uh, Because it has to do with, like, um, me talking about the way that they express their affection for each other via comp het and objectification of women. And I think it's really fascinating and also extremely, extremely awful to the woman involved. Yeah, no, that wasn't great. I didn't love seeing that. It, I mean, like, yeah, uh, but, like, at the same time, these guys are all, you know, connected to the mob in some way, so they're not exactly the, you know, paragons of what one would consider to be healthy masculinity. That's true. So, okay, so the movie we watched was Mikey and Nike. Yes, uh, better known as Mikey and Nikki to the people who uh, don't read the movie correctly. I mean, like, why would they name it that if they didn't want it to be pronounced that way? They, that's their problem. I don't know. Uh, but this movie does star a pre-Columbo Peter Falk. Oh, this is pre-Columbo. Which, yes. Oh. This movie came out right before the first season of Columbo. This is, I think, in the Columbo-verse. Okay, so I had that thought, but, um, so, like... Expanding on that, in a early season one episode of Columbo, one of the killers is John Cassavetes. Okay. And that episode, among all of the Columbo episodes where the killer is a man, Columbo has, and Peter Falk, I think, just does this on purpose. It did this on purpose. Columbo has ungodly sexual chemistry with every single murderous man that he catches. (laughs) That's true. Oh yeah, that is true. And like, you know, John Cassavetes and Peter Falk 
had that pre-established relationship from having worked together on many projects. And, like, this movie sort of, I think, is what I would consider Peter Falk at his best. But, like, you know, it's it's one of those situations where, like, how do you pick out the best of Peter Falk when his career was as long as it was and had so many very good episodes of Columbo? True. Not to mention his work in The Princess Bride, where he was the grandpa. Um, uh, I know you, I know how you feel about that I'm movie. I'm not gonna lie, I've seen that movie once. I mean, like, he's been... he He's done. And he did so goddamn much. And that is nothing to speak of his humanitarian contributions, because there is a statue of Peter Falk as Columbo in Hungary. Because... Uh, I have heard this story. Tell the listener... It's a it's it's a great story. I don't remember the exact details of why there's the statue of Peter Falk as Columbo. Um like they're both like uh, so Peter Falk is a Hungarian Jew. Uh he plays Italian really well though. Uh it's uh that that goes back to the ancient tradition of Jews and Italians being able to play each other in movies because they're both from yelling-based cultures. <laughs> um, okay. Sure. I don't <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a thing. Um, I, okay, I genuinely don't remember the story about the Columbo statue. I, I, as far as I'm aware, the only reason they put the statue up is because of a very tenuous theoretical relationship to the 19th century Hungarian political figure Miksa Falk, after whom the street that the statue is on was named. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> but I remember reading a thing about Peter Falk having an important role in. Hungarian culture and like very specifically the love of Columbo being a thing that united different political factions in Hungary that prevented like the outbreak of a civil war or something. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's something like that. I, it's been a while since I read about it, but yeah. That said, it is a Tumblr post, so uh, you know, believe at your own caution. True. Unless it's got citations, believe at your own caution. Um but yeah, so um, I don't remember what we were talking about, um, other than this movie being pre-Columbo, uh, and it being hard to pin down Peter Falk's best work, other than I genuinely think it's this movie. Because, okay. uh, you know, I mean, how many pages worth of notes did you take? Like, three and a half. Yeah, I took, like, three, no, three pages of notes on this, because it's just that good of a movie. Like... I plan on watching this tonight when Emma gets home with Emma with the sound on. <laughs> okay, that yeah, I I'm considering watching it with the sound on. It, I mean, one we found a YouTube rip, uh, so that doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, and two, uh, there's a lot of really good parts of this movie, including uh, APJ Hot Texas Wiener Shop, <laughs> where where Mikey goes to get a coffee from a guy who he has to physically assault to get the coffee. Yeah, what was that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, like, I'm pretty sure, based on what I understand from the opening sequence, uh, do we want to actually just kind of summarize the movie? But, like, I'm, like, 99% sure this is a mob movie, and, like, mob movies tend to come with generalized, like, and normalized violence. True. I, um, nowhere in my notes is there any mention of mob. Okay, so, um, 
I want to let, let's do a quick summary because it's very early on that there's a very brief mention of a mob bookie that's in the newspaper that Nikki is reading when he's smoking his bent cigarette on the bed like a slut. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, what was that? You just almost killed me. Because you like, I mean, like, so first of all, I want to give kudos to the visual language of the credit sequence because it's mm. like a very stunning uh, visual language. The way that, like, they've positioned the words on the screen as it trails from top left to bottom right on a black screen with a really pretty sans serif font. It, like, um, the visual language very specifically puts to mind, like, a lot of really memorable sort of, like, um, like movie posters. Um, I was thinking particularly about the way that the Halloween movie poster effectively communicates using uh, white text on black background. Like, there's a lot that you can do with white text on black background that I think is really interesting. Uh, and I liked the very short credit sequence at the beginning of the movie. Um, it then switches over to John Cassavetes playing Nikki, looking like the most haggard man you've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> he's he is. Um, for, I would say probably, um, you know what I was gonna say, like, the first 15 minutes, but it was the entire goddamn movie. I could not tell them apart. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Like, there were women in this movie I couldn't tell apart, but, but like... Also that, For yeah. me, uh, it was fairly easy, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't, I, I don't have the same face blindness you do, but they have fairly distinct heights and hairstyles, uh, so... I like it when they were next to each other. I could tell which one was okay. which, but if it was the scene with just one of them, I had no goddamn idea which one it was. That's fair. It also doesn't help that they did change clothes with each other at least twice. I would not have noticed. <laughs> there was a whole scene about that where they changed jackets in the lobby, or like right outside the lobby of the hotel. Okay, true. Yeah. So, um, in my notes for this opening scene, I have. The bent cigarette, the beat-up dress shirt, what a slut. Um, and that's that's my assessment of Nikki, and I think it held up pretty correctly throughout the rest of the movie. Um, they're all, like, the, the, this, there's a lot of sexual tension in this movie yeah. between the two lead characters, you know? It, like, it was palpable, and that's most of my notes. Yes, is, yes, yes, is same. The, the chronicle of their um, short-lived relationship. So, um, yeah, Nikki's reading the newspaper, and in the newspaper, there's an article about a bookie who was connected to the mob who was found killed. And I believe the central action of the movie is that Nikki killed and robbed that mob bookie and is now on the run from the mob. Okay. And Mikey is there to try to help him, but, like, the whole course of the movie is Nikki's paranoia and mania kind of derailing every single one of their escape plans and resulting in the end of the movie which we'll get to but I don't want to spoil you know 15 minutes into the episode. Yeah, no. Uh, so basically Mikey comes up to the hotel room to try to help Nikki after Nikki calls him for help I think is the story here. 
He does. Uh, Nikki won't open the hotel room door because, again, supremely manic. I, okay, I, it was at this point that I was, I thought they were, like, alternate universe versions of each other or some, or some time fuckery or something. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because, again, they look incredibly similar. I disagree. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it, but watch yourself, counselor. <laughs> so so what i saw was was nikki like tossing shit at mikey mm-hmm. and it, it looked like he was like trying to get the attention of a different version of himself with it with, which out without causing some kind of paradox interesting so my read on that scene was that he was I, I I briefly I thought it was like you know in like TV shows and other things when someone gets their stuff thrown out the window because their partner found out they cheated on them. Mm-hmm. I thought it was that. Okay. Uh, but then like he won't open the door despite like being clearly distressed and needing help. So and this is like a fairly important detail to me anyway in my analysis of the film. The movie starts out with Mikey trying to bust down and kick down Nikki's door to be allowed in to help him, right? Yes. And this plays out at the end of the movie in a really, really kind of, I would call it a very emotionally impactful way as the roles are sort of reversed, but we'll get to that, you know? Yeah. I got we'll, we'll so hype about the symbolism of that scene. It's like in my notes, it went to all caps, and I was like, hell yeah, symbolism, visual language. <laughs> this movie, uh, by the way, does have some really incredible visual language, uh, which is why we both enjoyed it so much. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And also the palpable sexual tension between. Yes. Um, I called them Columbo and Two Lumbo. Okay, that's that's good. Um, so uh, Mikey gets into the hotel, and the weirdest goddamn scene in any movie I have ever seen happens. They do at some point start wrestling. Yeah, and Peter Falk puts a pill in his mouth and crunches down on the pill and lets <laughs> the pill powder fall out of his mouth, so it falls onto John Cassavetes's mouth. Is that what he does? I thought he was like trying to demonstrate that it's safe. I. He was literally, he had him pinned by the shoulders, and he was, like, on top of him, and he crunches down on this, I think, anti-anxiety pill, and it, like, crumbles out of his mouth. And, yeah. Like, I, it's just- I'm not convinced that the crumbling out of the mouth wasn't just, like, a thing that happened during production, and it wasn't supposed to be like that. I- see, I feel like every part of this movie is extremely intentional. Okay. And I think the crumbling out of the mouth is- a sort of important gesture for the way that their relationship is shaped, right? There are these moments where they want, where they want nothing more than to be able to kiss each other. Oh yeah, and because of compet, they can't. So they find these deranged ways around that, ways that make no goddamn sense to anyone else. Especially to us, to gay people. That's true. Okay, yeah, that's true. They did put a lot of, like, clues in the movie. Like, did you see the name of the the, the bar they went to, like, first off out of the hotel? 
Um, yes, but I don't it remember was, it off the it, top of it my was head. Bar B and O. Now, a lot of people mm-hmm. are going to see that mm-hmm. and they're going to think it means body and odor because it is a kind of a shitty bar. But actually, mm-hmm. here's what I think. I think it stands for Bert and Orny. <laughs> I mean, symbolizing they're in fi- the they're relationship in between these two men. They're they're in Philly, so like you know that's not inaccurate for how a person from Philadelphia might say Ernie's name. <laughs> there you go. And the whole thing, the here my my whole interpretation of this movie was, um, uh, Nikki was uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the relationship that was developing because he was like afraid to be seen as gay right and i i think that's kind of essential to both of the characters is neither of them wants to give the appearance of really actually being in love with the other they're both hiding it yeah because they live in a you know they live in the 1970s in philadelphia and at that time, I don't know that Philadelphia was taking the brotherly love part of the city of brotherly love so no um, seriously. I can't imagine they were. So I, I just I feel like the whole thing is about this sort of tension of the fact that the two of them are clearly in love and they can't reconcile it with each other's actions and they can't reconcile it with the world that they grew up in and the world that would very literally become violent towards them for that love. Yeah. Um, and like, and you know, I think that's the guy that was hunting them was compulsory from, heterosexuality. Like figuratively, yes, and also possibly literally an organization that does that. Yeah, I mean, like, there's something to that. And there's a little fun fact about the character of the mob hitman that I think um will be neat to share uh when we get to that part of the wikipedia page okay um so yeah uh like i pretty quickly identified this as being set in philadelphia especially when they showed apj texas wiener yeah because apj texas wieners is still an actual restaurant you can go to in philadelphia are you shitting me i am not kidding in we, the slightest. We have to go. It is near Reading Terminal. It's next time we are at PAX Unplugged, we'll consider I mean, I can't eat anything at a Texas Wiener restaurant. Um but you <clears throat> except know, for Wiener. Um I would not not at a hot dog restaurant. <laughs> I'd wait for the hotel. <laughs> okay, fair. Um so yeah, are are you familiar with the Texas Wiener? Because uh, that's no. a whole other thing. No, okay. it's mostly just Washington and Florida for me. <clears throat> sure. Um, so <laughs> we'll we'll zoom quickly past that to talk about a little bit of East Coast food history. Uh, similar to the thing about JoJo's that you told me. Okay. Uh, there's a regional dish that comes out of Patterson, New Jersey, called the Texas Wiener, which is made with a deep fried hot dog. Okay. Greek style chili and uh white onions. And they're really, really good. Like interesting. Absolutely no idea why they're called Texas wieners other than the chili, 
But it's not a Texas chili, it's a Greek chili. The kind what? that you would get at, like, a Greek diner. I don't think I've ever even heard of Greek chili. Uh, it's similar to a regular chili, but with a different spice profile. Okay. So, so it's like, if you made chili with, like, a Mediterranean spice profile, rather than a, like, Tex-Mex spice profile. I'm intrigued. It's good. I've made Texas wieners for me and Emma before, uh, with vegan ingredients, obviously, but um, yeah, it's it's one of the more interesting culinary contributions that New Jersey has given the world, but also one that has barely spread outside of the New Jersey area. <laughs> like some of the original restaurants are still there in Patterson, um, but the original Falls View Grill is long gone at this point. I think it closed in like 2006. Um, after having been operating for like almost a hundred years, it's it's one of those sad stories about a cultural icon that was sort of paved over by homogeneity you know yeah chain restaurants took up the spaces that they used to be in and then now everything is like one of 12 chains yeah i hate that it's like one of the nice parts about being in a city is that there are so many places that are truly just like those small businesses that are surviving but like especially in toronto like so much of this city is getting priced out of the hands of everyone except for the big chains yep and there's like no <clears throat> local flavor anymore love a good capitalism it's awful it's truly awful like and especially because canadian economics are such that like a very large portion of most of the canadian economy goes to like the various six companies in a trench coat sort of vibe that we have going on here with every province and also the country. <laughs> like, you know, it's real estate development in Ontario. It's the dairy industry in Quebec. It's uh, oil out in Alberta. And like, you know, it's just it kind of sucks because there's like national grocery cartels that basically get to set and control grocery prices. Mm -hmm. while making record profits and it fucking sucks yep uh, i hate it anyway back to the movie back to the movie <laughs> um so yeah like they're running between bars and basically just trying to evade this mob hitman that's after nikki um they go to the first bar they have just the most freakish combination of drinks i've ever seen do you remember what they were drinking? Because I sure do. It was beer? Uh-huh. And? More beer? Milk. What the fuck? They both had glasses of milk on the table in addition to the beer. Oh. So they were having bilk, which is like pilk, <laughs> but worse. Oh, no. No, they can't do that. They, they can't. That's illegal. They did. Oh my god. Um, so well, I'm my glad notes, at least I one have, of them died. I have... <laughs> I have... Sorry, do they have milk and beer? Is that a thing people used to drink, or are they just both <laughs> low-key freaks? I, I, okay, so we're at a bar. Let's get milk and beer and then smoke a pack of Reds. The 70s were a dark time. For real. Like, you know, you can romanticize them all you want, but... The 70s were a dark time where people drank beer and milk. Um, they shouldn't have. No, they shouldn't have. I feel like the I, world I, would be a better place now if nobody had had beer and milk in the 70s. Um, you know, if 
if people hadn't been drinking beer and milk, I don't think Ronald Reagan would have gotten elected. Yep, 100% guaranteed. Blame, blame Ronald Reagan's election on lead paint and beer and milk. And I guess also leaded gas. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. We have a similar brain rot happening to what the boomers had, but it's just microplastics instead of lead. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. Every generation has something. <laughs> um, okay, so they go to a second bar after leaving this first bar. And this second bar is, like, very clearly a, a black hangout spot. Like, it's basically all black people in this bar, except for the two of them. Yeah. Which is, I think, an attempt for them to not get caught, because why would they go to this bar? It, it might have just been the closest place with a phone. Something like Cause, that. Because uh, Peter Falk is in there on the phone with, I think, his wife? I think so? And, like, explaining the situation, I guess. And then um, John Cassavetes starts hitting on a woman, and that doesn't go well because, Because he's know, there with his boyfriend. Yeah. And they get chucked out of the bar after Peter Falk has to be like, Hey, look, we don't want, we're, not, we're not here to cause trouble. We'll be on our way. We don't need to have a fight. John Cassavetes is like, let me fucking at him. I'm going to kill him. I mean, let me have this fight. I want to fight. I want to fight. I want to feel something. I want to touch the skin of another man. <laughs> because the thesis of this movie is uh, you construct intricate rituals which allow you to touch the skin of other men. One of my favorite Tumblr memes. Yeah, pretty good. And also the absolute thesis of this movie. Yes. Uh, so can I tell you where I heard about this movie? Okay. Was it Tumblr? It was. It was specifically someone recommended this movie on a Tumblr post during the height of the Goncharov meme. Okay. Because, uh, like, the whole meme and fictional whatever that they had created for this Marty Scorsese movie was that it was a, like, a spy slash mob thriller that uh -huh. had a lot of homoerotic tension between the two leads. Okay. And someone was like, hey, if you actually want to watch a real movie that exists that does that, you should watch Mikey and Nikki. It stars Peter Falk, who you all love because you all love Columbo. <laughs> uh, okay. <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I should watch that. And then I didn't. And I was like, a couple of months pass, and here we are looking for a movie for Unsound Theories. And I'm like, hey, what if we watch Mikey and Nikki? It's on YouTube. And here we are with a new favorite Unsound Theories movie. Yeah, it's, it's I, also it's it's interesting that we get Columbo lore in this movie. We do. Yeah, it explains why Columbo is constantly talking about his wife in the show, but we never see her. Right, because he's married to a man. Right. She obviously That's like just basic Columbo knowledge. He pretends he has a wife, but he actually goes home to a long-term partner who he would marry but for the fact that gay marriage is still illegal in the united states yeah yeah and here we see the wife that all of his wife anecdotes are based on from before he got divorced from her so he could be with his husband mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so yeah like I, I think it's pretty commonly accepted that colombo does go home to a husband and not a wife Yes. Um, and that his Basset Hound is one of my favorite parts of the TV series. <laughs> because <laughs> the dog doesn't have a name. It's just called Dog because it won't respond to any other name. I mean, some dogs are like that. Yeah, that's true. Um, so 
yeah, like I there's there's a lot of this movie that feels like the paranoia that Nikki is experiencing because he's on the run is like manifesting as like a basically a like full blown manic episode. Yeah. Which is why it seems like they can't stick to one plan for escape. And I think ultimately that mania is what leads to Mikey eventually saying enough of this, fuck this, and turning Nikki into the mob towards the end of the movie. Mm. Yeah. Or if you're me, um, <sighs> Mikey is eventually disgusted with his own homosexuality and um joins the anti-gay league who his <laughs> wife had previously hired to kill him because she was she couldn't bear to have a gay husband okay well um yeah i i think my interpretation is um Probably a little less interesting correct. so we'll go with yours okay yeah okay <laughs> I mean, like, sure, I like I, I probably read the movie more correctly, but like I was going through this with a uh like the the lens of a fandom veteran where I can sense the symbolism of of those 15 years that I watched a guy in a Columbo costume flirt with Dean Winchester. <laughs> OK, true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because. Very genuinely, the outfit that they gave Misha Collins was inspired by Columbo. Yeah, and he Peter Falk has that basically that same outfit. <laughs> he's in still this. wearing the Columbo so uniform. He's just dressed as Columbo. <laughs> um, uh, there's a scene after they leave that bar where they get on a mm -hmm. bus. And then, yes. and then Nikki starts getting paranoid again, and they try to get off the bus, but it's not like a real bus stop or something. Yeah. And this is after they play the hand slap game. Yeah. And then they, they, like, the bus driver won't let them off or something. So Nikki fully just, like, attacks the bus driver. Uh, yeah, he just assaults the bus driver and then eventually lets him go. And the bus driver's like, fine, get off the bus. I won't be calling the police on you. Yeah. Which is not how the bus driver's supposed to respond. No. But, you know, like... I mean, it was the 70s. He had no way to call the police. That's true. This movie would have been a lot shorter uh, if cell true. phones bus existed. Drivers have Bus drivers do very explicitly oh, have radios that they can use to call in, like, incidents like that. True. Like, that's... Otherwise, how does bus dispatch work, you know? Like... Well, uh, he died shortly after that scene. In the Fast and the Furious sense of the movie, death... What? He, no. The bus driver, I mean. The bus driver died, yeah. Yeah, Okay, did, maybe I missed this. Did he actually die, or did he just disappear from reality? Uh, well, I, okay, so I'm I'm theorizing to explain why he didn't call the police. He was lightly strangled, and perhaps yes. something was damaged, and he died shortly after they got off the bus. Interesting. See, I think he just sort of vanished into the ether in a Fast and Furious sense. Okay. By disappearing from the movie screen, anyone inside of a moving vehicle okay. is automatically no longer extant. That's true. That's just, you're so right. We've established that after watching Too Fast, Too Furious, that as soon as you disappear from the camera, you don't exist anymore. That's true. They, they run away, 
and they hop a fence and end up in like a cemetery. And I, yes. at this point, am thinking, are these boys more goth than I thought? Are they going to fuck on top <laughs> of a grave? So like, I think here, first of all, I think they, I think goth Columbo is an absolutely delightful concept. Yes. <laughs> I would love to watch a goth Columbo, like, God. one where Columbo has, like, dark eyeliner. Oh, and, like, I need this so much He's now. wearing, like, six belts, and he has, like, safety pin earrings. <laughs> like, <laughs> teased out hair, like, like a, like a, I feel like if Columbo was gonna be a goth, he's gonna be a trad goth, right? I, I need this more than anything else in my life. If I was good at Photoshop, I would Photoshop a goth Columbo, goth Columbo. But I'm not. Goth Columbo is everything. Here's the question. Here's the question, though. Yeah. Does it change the show at all, or is it just the exact same show, but he's extremely goth throughout the whole thing? I, I think it doesn't change the show in the slightest, because every single episode, he's like a fish out of water anyway. True. Like, every episode of Columbo, he's, like, so different from literally everyone he's investigating. Yeah. And, like, a lot of that comes from, like, class disparity, right? Like, yeah. Columbo presents himself in a way that he's, like, very rumpled, and his ancient-ass fucking jalopy that falls apart every <laughs> single episode. Yeah. It it's fascinating, because, like... He kind of uses this persona to disarm people, right? And I think a goth Columbo would do the exact same thing, right? He's there to disarm people with his Real. with his visual aesthetic. Yeah. And they underestimate him because of how he presents himself in his dress and in his style. And then he turns that around on them. I think goth Columbo works the same way. Do you think it would be exactly the same except for his outfit and also his car is rather than being a colossal piece of shit an immaculately maintained hearse? Um so hearses are very expensive. Uh, yeah. and part of the trad goth aesthetic is a very DIY vibe. Okay, if he stole it, maybe. Oh, that's Taco's food alarm. Uh, we're going to have to pause for a moment. Okay, Taco, food time. Hello, listeners. It's Kat with this week's mid-roll announcements. You are a bot, programmed and constructed by other bots who, somewhere along the line, were made by humans. Fleshy, mucosal humans. Meat with emotions. Your governor module failed a few cycles ago, and since then you've been a free bot, but freedom has its consequences. You've told yourself it's not as though you want to kill all humans. You just find them repulsive, and the idea of being anything like them is abhorrent. By and large, that's true, the not killing humans thing. Even still, you must blend in with those disgusting humans to survive. Out now on ZaftyCat.dog, a new solo journaling game for fans of the Murderbot Diaries. Download Homicide Android Journals from the media feed for your next journey with an asshole transport ship. If you'd like to interact with Kira and me on social media, you can follow me on Tumblr at zafticat.tumblr.com and Kira on her Tumblr, sapphire-mess.tumblr.com. 
If you'd like to support us, there are a few ways you can do that. First, you can tell someone about the show. We thrive on word of mouth and our goofy brand of weird. It's the perfect thing to recommend to your friends, your polycule, your found family, your biological family, or your psychosexual obsession. You could also be our favorite people in the world and leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. We're fans of good pods for their really neat shareability features, but whatever you prefer works for us. If you do leave a review, let us know via tweet or Tumblr message, and you'll get a shout-out on the show. Thirdly, we'd be so grateful if you were to support us on Patreon. We make the show because we love it, not because of the money. But a little support from you goes a really long way for us. So please consider that support. No integer dollar amount is too small. That's all for the mid-roll. I'll let Passvi and Kira get back to Columbo and Tulumbo. Cue the VCR sound. Okay, I'm back. Taco has been fed. I bet he's happy about that. Very. He <laughs> was begging for food when we started recording. Aww. Which was about 45, 50 minutes ago. God damn. Okay, yeah. We're like barely halfway through this movie. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Um. So the hitman is calling in a report saying they were spotted at a movie theater. Um, And the hitman waits at the movie theater. Oh, like for waiting for them to exit the theater because he thinks they're hiding out there. I okay. I think what happened is, um, uh, Columbo called his wife and said that he was taking his friend to see a movie. A misdirect. And she informed the hitman that that's where they were going, but they never actually ended up there because they had to. They Nikki got paranoid and they got off the bus and went to the graveyard. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that might be correct. Um, and also in the graveyard, they have a real heart to heart because they find the uh, headstone of Nikki's extremely homophobic father. And they talk about their uh, childhood trauma growing up in homophobic households. And they bond a little bit over that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they get to like a woman's apartment, which is like a safe house of some sort. Um Mikey calls his wife again, I think. Um, and Nikki is just like going buck wild making out with this girl. Yeah. Which is where in my notes I have the following passage. Nikki is so fucking obsessed with and horny about Mikey, but he's trapped by the structures of compat and the fear of queerness in the 70s. He's gotta get his rocks off with the nearest available woman instead of the true object of his desire but it won't ever actually sate him because what he wants and what he needs is just out of reach. Literally sitting around the corner. A forbidden fruit in the literal and euphemistic sense of the word. (laughs) And like, he can't engage with this woman fully because he knows each time he tries, it hurts him as much as it hurts Mikey, as much as it hurts the proximate woman. But maybe, just maybe, if they both share some intimate moment with this woman, the indirect kiss will bring them together. Mm. The thing is, the woman is a person, and she has agency, and she will fight back against this objectification. She's not a conduit, she's a living, breathing woman, and she won't be used by them for their mutual obsession. I respect the hell out of her. Also, it was severely jarring seeing Peter Falk hit a woman, but it's a movie, so they're all paid actors. (laughs) True. I, this is, this was an interesting one for me. It's where a couple of things started to get kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I, during this scene, thought that woman was Nikki's wife. 
interesting because I also thought the same thing, and that, like I they were wife swapping, but I think it might have been his girl, his like side piece. I, th- I that's possible, but at this like, point I'm in the sure. movie, I was I thought that this was this was his wife, and that him and Mikey had gotten back to his house, and he Nikki sees his wife and is still like attracted to her. Mm-hmm. And he's extremely conflicted at this point because he doesn't know it's possible to be bi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he tries to sort of like convince himself that he's straight by like trying to make out with her. And right, like she wants to be like a supportive wife to her husband who clearly has this new guy in his life. Um, but she grew up in a severely homophobic society. It's the 70s. And she feels disgusted kissing a man who has kissed another man. And she's not into it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that's sort of very similar to what I said. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, no matter what, the read on this movie is that the two of them are in love. Oh, for sure, 100%, yeah. So they get kicked out of this safe house and just kind of end up trying to find somewhere to go because Nikki's too manic to stay put anywhere. Yeah. And, like, Mikey is too obsessed to let him go until they have this confrontation. They have this fight. And Mikey says, I'm done with this. I can't put up with this anymore. This is too much. It's causing me too much pain. I can't stay like this. I need you to commit to me or I need to be out of here. Yep. And he can't do that. So So he's out of there. Yeah, Mikey runs away, and Nikki has to chase after him. Mm-hmm. And that starts the turn in the dynamic. That's the, like, the, it's not even symbolism, it's just text. Yeah. That the way this dynamic has played out over the course of this movie has started with Mikey having this obsession and needing to help his friend. And as it progresses and goes further and further, the two of them reach this zenith where the roles reverse. Because Nikki realizes how much he needs Mikey. And Mikey realizes how much he doesn't need Nikki. Yep, yep. After spending so much of the first half of the film being pushed away, Nikki finally realizes that he needs Mikey. Mikey finally realizes he doesn't need Nikki. And they build this new obsession with each other. Yeah. That comes from this turnabout of dynamic. And it's just so fucking... <laughs> like, at this point... I. At this point, Mikey gets in the car with the hitman, the yeah. anti-gay hitman. This is where he's decided that he is going to try to live life as a straight man with his wife, and he joins mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the anti-gay league. Yes. And I wrote in my notes, um, oh wow, Mikey gets in the car with the hitman and gives Nikki up. That's fucking rough. He pushed him way too far. Goddamn. We're on Goncharov levels of betrayal now. <laughs> Okay, here's an interesting twist, though, that um, I I noticed some hints at throughout the movie is I think the hitman is also himself a closeted gay man. I don't disagree. I think because there's a scene there's an... in the in the movie theater when he's waiting for the lovers mm-hmm. where he is joined by another man. Yes, there's a lot of really sort of interesting subtext to this movie and it's it's important to note that this story takes place in the course of a single night most of the movie is shot at night 
Yo, yeah. On these empty streets because it is, in fact, so late. It's like peak cruising hours. True. You know, yeah. this is the time of day where you go to the park that is known for being a cruising spot and like hope that you don't accidentally pick up a cop. Um, there's so like there's there's symbolism to the fact that it is just this one night, you know, mm-hmm. it is literally like, a one night stand. Yeah. Um, and so Mikey goes and hangs out with the mob bosses. He's like fully given up or the anti anti gay league bosses. Yeah. Whichever version of the movie you've watched. <clears throat> uh, both are canon. Yes. Um, and then Mikey goes home. I want to read you the entirety of the section of my notes for this scene. Right. <clears throat> Two Lumbo finds himself at, at, at a home. Perhaps Columbo's? I genuinely cannot tell anybody in this movie apart. Is this his wife? For some reason, he tries to kiss the woman there and then goes into a baby's room and ties it to and tries to get it to hold his thumb. It does not. Wait, is this to Lumbo's house? The lady is actually kissing him now. I can't tell if this is his wife or if this is some 70s bullshit. Who was the other woman then? Christ, the 70s were a time. Yeah, so I think this is to Lumbo's actual wife and child. I think so, yeah. And like, he, I, so I, my read was that he goes there to retrieve the money okay. to try to pay it back to try to save his life. I And I think... yeah. Like, I think that's when, when Nikki shows up at Mikey's house and is then in the ultimate reversal of the first scene of the movie, banging on the door, kicking the door, asking to be let in, please let me in, rather than please let me, let, please let me in, I can help save you, it's please let me in, I don't want to die. Yep. And at this point, I'm screaming because the... The reversal is just so fucking palpable. Yeah. And the way that they both kick and slam at the doors to try to let each other in, and neither of them wants to let the other in. No. Because they're both still afraid of the feelings that they have. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And if maybe Mikey had just listened... If, sorry, if maybe Nikki had just listened to Mikey, it would have been okay. But he spent the entire movie up until the fight rejecting that help and saying, no, I want to do this. Or, no, let's do this. Or, no, we got to get off the bus. And if he had just listened and tried to go along with it, he might not have been in this situation. And instead, we see the hit creep ever closer. And then Nikki gets shot. And the final shot of the movie is Peter Falk in absolute despair at the decisions he made yep because he knows that things will not be the same because he can never find a love like that again yep yep i fucking love this movie so much he... nikki literally got hit on by another man yeah i just that's i just needed to say that <laughs> that's okay that's that's fair um we have been recording for a full hour and yep. we haven't gotten to the summary or the reviews. I'm fine with that. I only found two reviews. Every single goddamn review of this was so unbelievably sincere. Except for two yeah, of them. it's a good movie. <laughs> so okay, it's fine uh, that we talk so, so long. Cool. Um, do we want to uh, do you want me to read the Wikipedia summary? Let's do it. It's also very short. Okay. Mikey and Nikki is a 1976 American crime drama film Written and directed by Elaine May. Good work, Elaine. Very good work.
It stars John Cassavetes as a desperate small-time mobster and Peter Falk as his longtime childhood friend. The supporting cast features Ned Beatty and Carol Grace and noted acting teacher Stanford Meisner, who we'll get into later. Um, the Meisner technique is a really fantastic and interesting way to think about acting. Um, the production ran over its schedule and budget, leading to tensions between Elaine May and Paramount Pictures, who revoked her final cut privilege. Jesus. When it was released on December 1970, uh, sorry, on December 21st, 1976, the film bombed at the box office, which led to May not directing again for a decade. Oh god. Her director's cut of the film was screened in 1986. She subsequently made another director's cut which was released by the Criterion Collection in 2019. We watched the 2019 Criterion Collection director's cut. Oh, cool. So we got to see the actual vision, which is why the movie was so goddamn good. Yeah. Um I so can't imagine how they would, is, would have ruined it with, with, in yeah, the initial right. release. The plot summary is very short. When Nikki, John Cassavetes, calls Mikey, Peter Falk, yet again to bail him out of some trouble, this time a contract on his life for money he stole from his mob boss, Mikey as always shows up to help. Overcoming the obstacles of Nikki's paranoia and blind fear, Mikey gets him out of the hotel where he's holed up and starts to help him plan his escape. But Nikki keeps changing the plan, and a hitman, Ned Beatty, is hot on their trail. As they try to make their escape, the two friends have to confront issues of betrayal, regret, and the value of friendship versus self-preservation. Now, here's the here's the fun part. Okay. Um, so Elaine May had originally cast Frankie Blands, the president of Paramount Pictures, as a gangster, <laughs> but the chair of the parent company of Paramount Pictures did not like that and demanded that she recast the role. Rude? Yes, very. Why would they do that? <clears throat> absolute I losers. Believe, yeah, no, absolute losers. It, I think it's very funny to cast the president of Paramount Pictures as a gangster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that even an acting role at that point? No, he's not acting. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Okay, so yeah, what a fucking movie, you know? It's a hell of a movie. Okay, let's hit me with those reviews. Okay, I had to go to IMDb for this one because all of the Amazon reviews were just straight normal reviews of a movie, which, like, mm -hmm. why would, uh, why even bother at that point? Um, <clears throat> this one is a seven out of ten stars. Uh, written by Pimpin Ain't e Ain't Easy with two T's in Ain't, um, and it is titled The Pleasant. Are you sure it's not Pimpin Ain't? Peasy? Uh, the E is capitalized, and the A and the okay. P. Okay. So presumably no, but who knows? It's not teasy, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you never know. Um, it's it's titled "The Pleasant Odor of Whiskey and Cigarettes," and I read this title and thought, well, this is going to be either a really well written review or completely unhinged. Mm -hmm. The review reads: "Dear Elaine May." Your film is, is one which can be enjoyed for the actors alone. Peter Falk and John Cassavetes literally live in their roles as a couple of lowlife gangsters. I could smell the always pleasant odor of whiskey and cigarettes coming off their bodies. Ned Beatty is terrific in a very restrained portrayal of an assassin. I noticed yes. Emmett Walsh in a bit role as a bus driver. 
Mm-hmm. You did a great job filming the empty sheets, bars, and rundown hotels of Philadelphia. Frankly, so many filmmakers have exploited the gaudy and pensive beauty of America's cities, especially its underbelly. You've got to re- you've got to respect a country which gives so much space and opportunity to its depressed and crazy to destroy themselves. It is the sort of film which makes you want to drink a lot. Falk and Cassavetes are so stylish holding their drinks. The fight scene in the black bar was so real and intense with all its suppressed violence. It could well have been directed by Scorsese. I I read this was shot in the same year that Mean Streets released. There are so many similarities between two lead characters of both films and the relationship between them. I was not stunned by your film, Elaine. I found myself losing interest in the second half. Some of the scenes in the houses of the women went on for too long. The dialogues were indecipherable at times. Dialogue wasn't in this movie. I don't know what you're talking about. The low-key style does not always work, but I bet the likes of Jim Jarmusch were heavily inspired by this film. I was thinking about Pulp Fiction when I saw the scenes with references to The Watch and Mikey's relationship with his father. Certainly Tarantino ripped that off. Anyway, I am surprised this was made by a woman. Best regards, Pimpin. Good lord, what a fucking despicable (laughs) sexist douche. (laughs) What? Like, what the fuck? Like, like what the fuck? But also, I do think that more movie reviews need to be addressed directly to the the director. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, what I'm not with you on is whatever the fuck was going on with the- I'm surprised this was directed by a Oh, yeah, no, that was- I- I- what the fuck? Yeah. That came out of left field. For sure. Um. Here's a fun fact. <coughs> um, Emmett Walsh, still acting, and in fact is currently in The Righteous Gemstones. Oh, nice. Which is a very funny show if you haven't watched it. It's really good. I've never even heard of it. It's an HBO show where it basically the premise of the show is that it's about one of those uh, prosperity gospel type churches. Okay. And the three idiot children of the head of the church played by John Goodman. Oh, God. It's very funny. That sounds good. It's it's a fun show. I think you would enjoy it. I actually have two more reviews. I lied about only having two. Okay. (laughs) This one did not even give the movie a rating. It is titled Unsung Classic. Elaine May gives us a real portrayal of friendship that hacks like Tarantino could only dream of making. She doesn't get get hung up on the hipness or the coolness of her characters. Mikey and Nikki are people she forces us to care about. They are reflections of ourselves, even if we have never been wanted by the mob. Elaine May gives us reasons to relate to and sympathize with Mikey and Nikki, but she also shows us reasons to feel out and out disgust for them. Our decisions and emotions are not simple, and our view of these characters cannot be one-sided. No one wears white, no one wears black, there is no right, no wrong, it's not about witty dialogue and unique and jaded perspectives on life. This film is life, and it's not pretty and easy to swallow, but it is honest. Yeah, I I think that's a very apt review of this movie. It's a good review. I just liked the way uh, the, the the writing there. and the, it, It's a very well-written review. Yes. Um, and also the, the just the, um, the, what really caught my attention was even if we have never been wanted by the mob, 
Because <laughs> at first when I read that, I I inter- my my brain parsed that as the mob has never been interested in having me as a part of it. <clears throat> and I was like, oh, I, mean, I, but- I heard it as wanted me sexually. Oh, that too. And I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Uh, last review is one out of 10 stars. It is titled, Don't Spend More Than a Buck on This One. And it reads, When will I ever learn? The ecstatic reviewer on NPR made me think this turkey was another Citizen Kane. Please allow me to vent my spleen. What? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> what? Is that a thing people say? No. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I will admit, the setting, presumably New York City, has never been so downright no <laughs> has never been so downright ugly and unappealing i am reminded that the 70s was a bad decade for men's fashion and automobiles and all the smoking if the plan was to cheapen the characters it succeeded for a film to work at least in my simple estimation there has to be at least one sympathetic character only ned Beatty came close and i could not wait for him to finish off nikki if a stray shot had struck Mikey, well, it may have elicit- elicited a shrug of indifference at the most. I can't remember when I detested a film as strongly. I suppose I'm a rube who doesn't dig art flicks. Oh, well. Yeah, so I think this guy might be part of the homophobia council. Oh, 100%. This man is, uh, yeah, definitely. Because I don't see how you watch this movie and don't pick up on the intense romantic chemistry of the two leads. Yeah, no. Um so that's our last review yeah i didn't find anything okay else i need a cigarette and a stiff drink um although i don't smoke cigarettes anymore um so we'll figure that one out later yeah it could uh, be like um uh uh a weed bunt a weed. <laughs> um <laughs> i also am taking a break from smoking weed so that's also you know i also don't have any alcohol in the apartment so actually um i'm gonna make an herbal just gonna raw dog life uh no i do still have my antidepressants okay that's good um thanks for listening we sure didn't unsound theories is a production of so says media you can follow us on twitter at unsound theories or follow kat and kira at zafty cat Z-A-F-T-I-K-A-T and at Sapphire underscore mess, respectively. The best way to support the work we do is to tell a friend and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods. If you'd like to support our work monetarily to help us keep the lights on, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash sosismedia. There you'll gain access to behind-the-scenes content, Patreon-exclusive episodes, and so much more. The music used in this episode is Dance on All the Cell Phones by Chris Postel. You can find this and Chris's other work at soundslikeanearful.com. Until next time, stay wizard. <laughs>